Uh, if you've ever been in court, you know the object of most litigants is to win. And so you get the best lawyer you can, you gather the evidence that is in your favor, and you bring in favorable witnesses. And when it's all over, is everyone always convinced that justice was served? Of course they're not. I'll never forget 11 years ago, I was uh, waiting in line to park, park my car at a Chicago White Sox game. And a man walked by on the sidewalk wearing an O.J. Simpson jersey. And I thought to myself as I watched him walk by with that O.J. Simpson on the back of his jersey, wow, do we live in different worlds. I thought I wouldn't be caught dead wearing an O.J. Simpson jersey. Uh, pardon the pun, by the way. <laughs> my view is that high-powered lawyers and a biased jury enabled O.J. to walk. You know, of all the trials that have ever occurred, one had a very different strategy, and that was Jesus' trial. Now, most thought he was innocent. Pilate certainly did. Judas later said, I betrayed innocent blood. In fact, since the Sanhedrin, the highest Jewish court, could not pin him down, Jesus could have walked. So you know what Jesus did? Jesus gave them the charges that they were looking for. And we say, what? What kind of a strategy is that? They couldn't come up with charges against him, and so he gave them the charges they were looking for. And when we ask why, the answer is very clear. Jesus' strategy was to lose, not to win. Jesus deliberately blew his own case on purpose. And if we ask why, Jesus had a very, very different purpose than most defendants being tried. In fact, this morning, as we look at uh, the purpose of Jesus' trial, here's what we see Jesus was doing. Jesus affirmed his identity at his trial as God and Messiah by fulfilling the roles assigned to him in Old Testament prophecy. That's why he deliberately lost. He wanted to fulfill all that had been predicted of him in the Old Testament so that once again he could prove who he was and what he came to do. This morning, as we continue in the Gospel of Mark, we want to look together at Jesus on trial before the Sanhedrin. And I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 14. And let's look together at what Jesus did that day, that evening actually, which stretched into the morning as he blew his own trial before the Sanhedrin. I want you to follow along with me as I begin starting in verse 53. And let's notice the roles that Jesus knew. The Old Testament had predicted, and therefore he methodically fulfilled. Mark 14, verse 53, and listen to God's word. 
And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent, and he made no answer. Let's pray together. Lord, one of the reasons we believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, And that you made a perfect sacrifice for us on the cross and rose again and ascended to the majesty on high is because all that was predicted of you hundreds of years before you fulfilled in precise detail. And it was the Father's way of giving to us an address in the Old Testament that would lead us exactly to the one that He would send when He came, and we could have confidence that our faith in Jesus Christ is placed in the real person. And so today, once again, teach us who Jesus is, what He came to do, and how wonderful Your plan is. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. In this opening part of the trial before the Sanhedrin, we notice that Jesus fulfilled the role of the silent lamb. Now, this is a famous painting entitled The False Witnesses. By the way, from this day forward, as we continue on in the events of Jesus' life leading up to the cross, there will be famous paintings of almost every single scene. And from verse 31, we know the whole council, or verse 53, the whole council that is mentioned is the Sanhedrin. It was comprised of 71 members under the headship of the high priest. Now when you put the Gospels together, what we discover is this. There was a preliminary hearing before the father-in-law of the high priest, the former high priest Annas. And then what we have read here was the arraignment that took place before Caiaphas, and then there was a verdict that was reached just after dawn. Two things are very striking. The total injustice of the trial and the total silence of Jesus. Lawyers have studied what occurred before the Sanhedrin, and they have said it is a travesty of justice, a mockery of legality. 
And from the Jewish Mishnah, we know that the Sanhedrin broke all of their own laws. The uh, Mishnah is that portion of the Talmud, which is the Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, that deals with the laws of Israel. And uh, there were a number of ways in which uh, the Sanhedrin, that evening, stretching into the morning, broke their own laws. Number one, it was an illegal place. The official meeting place of the Sanhedrin, for all cases, was a place called the Hall of Stones in the temple, and they were not to try a case in a private home. And they did that twice in the home of Annas, and then as we read, in the home of Caiaphas. It was also an illegal time. Defendants were not to be tried at night, nor were they to be tried during a major feast of Israel. And Jesus was tried at night during the Passover. The proceedings were illegal. The defendant was always presumed innocent, and the defense had the right to call the very first witnesses, and the judge could not be the prosecutor. We also know that the witnesses were illegal. According to Jewish law, and you know this from the Old Testament, that there had to be at least two witnesses who agreed. And if those witnesses were found to be false, they were to be dismissed and even disciplined. You noticed in verses 57 to 59 that some of the witnesses brought up Jesus' prediction about His resurrection. He said, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. They misunderstood Jesus. He was talking about the temple of His body that would die and resurrect, but they thought He was talking about the temple in Jerusalem, and to destroy that temple was a capital offense. But notice, even when they misrepresented what Jesus meant... The Bible says even then their testimonies conflicted. And then finally, the verdict was illegal. If the Sanhedrin passed a verdict of death, they were to wait one day to carry out the penalty to reconsider mercy. And so it was very, very clear this was a rush to judgment because they had already decided to do away with Jesus. You know, as I think about all this, it reminds me of that movie, To Kill a Mockingbird, one of my favorite movies. And if you've watched that movie or read the book, you know that Tom Robinson was killed for one reason and one reason alone, and that is he was black. And Jesus is very clear was killed for one reason and one reason alone. He was the truth. And as you watch the movie To Kill a Mockingbird and and you hear that Tom Robinson was shot in the back as he ran away, the same sinking feeling that you have then you should have here. As you feel outraged in watching that movie, we should feel outraged here. But the amazing thing is, Jesus was not. Jesus was not. His response was total silence. 
when he had the chance to speak, he said nothing. The high priest was so frustrated that he took up the prosecution in verse 60, and he said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Why? Why? Well, I think there's a surface answer. And the surface answer is Jesus was winning without a word, wasn't he? There's an old saying, when your enemies are self-destructing, get out of the way. And there's clearly a surface answer here. Jesus' enemies were self-destructing, and so it was just easy for him to stay out of the way. But there's a much deeper answer, isn't there? Jesus was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Read with me Isaiah 53, 7. Let's read it together. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearies is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. You see, Jesus knew God's plan. He knew the time had come for him to lay down his life. Earlier in his ministry in the Gospel of John in chapter 10, as he was giving to us the discourse on the Good Shepherd, he said, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. He said, I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And Jesus blew his own case by remaining silent because he knew this is the Father's plan. This is what was predicted 700 years earlier, and I am fulfilling God's will and the prophecy of Isaiah. Now as we continue in this trial, Jesus fulfilled a second role from biblical prophecy. The second role is the role of the supreme king. And I want you to notice what happened next. Look with me at verse 61. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now at this point, Caiaphas is fit to be tied. He has Jesus right where he wants him, but he has no evidence. And so he takes matters into his own hands. Again, his actions are totally illegal. He takes up the prosecution. He asks a leading question of Jesus. And he seeks to have Jesus incriminate himself. By the way, the details here of his question are amazing and how Jesus answered them. Uh, the expression, the blessed, is a title for God. 
As you know, the Jews would often not use the name of God because they didn't want to misuse it. And so they had many titles that they would use uh, to describe God or to give God a title instead of using His name. So the blessed is a title for God. Christ and Son of are titles of the Messiah. Now again, Jesus did not have to answer. Jewish law predicted protected every accused person from self-incrimination, Jesus' next words determine whether he lives or dies. If he doesn't answer, Jesus goes free. But what does he say? He says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, and coming with the clouds of glory. I am here clearly has a double meaning. To us, Jesus is claiming deity. He is claiming to be God. I love that old song that Daniel Amos used to sing, and the words in the chorus went like this, Jesus is Jehovah to me. He is Lord and King of kings. He's more than a man. He's the great I am. Jesus is Jehovah to me. And every time we hear Jesus use this expression, I am, every believer says, Jesus Christ was claiming to be God. But then something else here. Something else here. The second expression Christ, or Son of Messiah, or I Am, for Caiaphas, meant Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. This is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus actually verbally says, I am the Messiah. Can you imagine how their mouths must have dropped open? He said it. The exact thing that they were looking for. And then before they had time to react, Jesus gives to them more than they wanted to hear. Jesus puts together two citations from the Old Testament. The first one is found in Psalm 110. And here the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. And then along with that, Jesus paraphrases another important prophecy from Daniel 7 verse 13, in which Daniel the prophet says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven, He approached the Ancient of Days, and he was led into his presence. What these passages are describing is a judgment scene. Uh, In the Old Testament, uh, when a king would come with his war chariots, and would come down into the land of Palestine, let's say, to take over a kingdom that had rebelled against him, those chariots would, would pull up dust as they rode that would look like a huge cloud. 
And so Jesus, quoting from Daniel, who is describing this scene of kings coming and enacting judgment against those who have rebelled against them, is bringing together a judgment scene. And what the Savior is saying to Caiaphas and the whole Sanhedrin is this, you are judging me, but someday I will judge you. Jesus is looking beyond the cross to the resurrection, to His ascension, to His enthronement in heaven, and ultimately His second coming. What this is, is Hebrews 12, 2 in a nutshell, where the Bible says that we are to fix our eyes upon the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of God. You see, Jesus could accept the injustice of this trial because he knew what was coming. He knew what was coming. Can I just pause here for just a moment? There are injustices in life, aren't there? Life is filled with many injustices. And God's people are often treated unfairly. If we were to give testimonies this morning from our congregation, many of us could raise our hands and say, Pastor, I am being treated unjustly at this very moment, or I have been in my life. And I've learned this, the longer you live, the more you are exposed to experiencing injustice. The other day I was listening to Focus on the Family radio, and this caught my attention. This is what they said, teach your kids that life is not always fair. Because if they grow up thinking that life is always fair, they will become bitterly disillusioned and dejected. Because life is not always fair. Now, we are to work for justice for others, and we are to seek justice for ourselves when we can. But here's the question everyone must face. What do we do when God wills injustice happens to us? Isn't that what happened to Jesus? This was unjust. And yet, clearly, God willed that this injustice was to, was to happen. And what did Jesus do? What did he do? One of my favorite passages in the Bible when I experience injustice is exactly what Jesus did when he experienced his injustice. Look at this wonderful passage that is a favorite passage of mine. 1 Peter 2 verse 23. He did not retaliate when he was insulted nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. Look what we learn. Our chief role model is the Lord. He suffered unjustly. 
But his reasoning was that his father would judge matters in due time, and he was obedient. Another thing that we could add to this, as he stood before the Sanhedrin, and in a moment we're going to see the suffering that began, he had total peace, total peace, because he knew what was coming. And let me just say to us this morning, as suffering followers of the Savior, who have experienced many injustices, and who will experience more injustices, He is our model. He suffered unjustly, sometimes we do. We must reason. The Father has a different plan. He will judge matters in His own time. We must be obedient in the meantime. And when we are, there will be incredible peace as we wait for God's plan to be fulfilled. What an amazing thing is occurring here. Jesus, in the midst of His own trial, is setting this amazing example for us when we are tried unfairly. There's a final role that Jesus played as He stood before the Sanhedrin. Finally, number three, Jesus fulfilled the role of suffering servant. This again is a, another famous painting entitled The Mocking of Christ by an unknown painter in the 17th century. And I want you to notice what the Bible says Jesus experienced as you pick it up with me in verse 63. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Let's just follow through this one by one. Caiaphas tore his clothes, which was an outward sign of grief and outrage. In fact, the high priest was required to do this if he felt that blasphemy had occurred. The charge that he made against Jesus was blasphemy. And you say, how could they charge him with blasphemy? Well, according to Psalm 2, only God could announce and enthrone his Messiah. So what they believed was that Jesus was claiming prerogatives of God. And whenever you claim prerogatives of God, who does that make you? That makes you God. Jesus was clearly claiming to be equal with God. And they believed that that was blasphemy, and so the high priest tore his robes. They said he was worthy of death. Mosaic law prescribed death penalty for blasphemy in Leviticus 24. And then the Bible says, they began to spit on him. Do you know spitting on someone is one of the most disgusting things you can do? 
It is a way of showing total rejection. I mentioned the movie To Kill a Mockingbird earlier. And after the trial in which uh, Tom Robinson is declared guilty and later shot as he was claimed to be running away in the back, later in the movie, Bob Ewell spits in the face of Atticus Finch. And you know that Ewell was guilty of beating his own daughter and pinning the blame on Tom Robinson, who then is killed. And Finch defended an innocent black man and knew the true guilt of a guilty white man. And Ewell so despised Atticus Finch for daring to expose the truth against him that he spit forcefully in his face. And if you've watched the movie, you know that He reaches into his pocket slowly, pulls out a handkerchief, and with great restraint, wipes the saliva slowly from his face. Even though it's just a movie, it's one of the hardest parts to watch in that film. But imagine this, the foul-spelling spit running down the face of Jesus, spitting in the face of God. If it's hard to watch that happen to a southern lawyer, how much harder to see Jesus. And then they covered his face, struck him, and said, prophesy, who hit you? Isaiah 11.3 says this, he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes. The rabbis taught that the true Messiah could judge matters without the benefit of sight. And so these actions were ridicule of one they believed were making false claims. Do you know one of the hardest things to endure is when you know you're right and you're ridiculed as though you were wrong? But then not to defend yourself, but to accept the abuse because you know this is the will of God? It's one of the hardest things anyone can ever do. Why did Jesus do it? Why did He remain silent? He had another prophecy in mind. Here's what Isaiah 50 verse 6 said. Let's read it together, shall we? I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Do you know right here is where the sufferings leading to death that Isaiah predicted begin? Jesus 
remain silent to suffer and die for us. 1 Peter 2.21 says this, Christ also suffered for us, the just for the unjust, that He might lead us to God. And God did not vindicate Jesus immediately. That was to come. But God had a different plan. That plan was your salvation. And it was mine. And Jesus submitted to the role of the suffering servant. Yesterday we had the opportunity to witness to a college senior on Fisher Street. And as we shared the gospel with this young man who graciously gave us about 15 minutes to share with him in spite of the fact that exam week is coming, One of the things that he questioned is that God is a judge who will judge sinners. He said, I I know that some people see it that way, but, but he did not. And let me ask you this question. If God is not a judge who judges sinners, then why did Jesus go to the cross? If God is not a God, who must judge the sins of people like you and me, then there was no reason that Jesus should go to the cross to bear His judgment against people like you and me. And this young man could not see that. In fact, he said to me as I talked about my own sins that I've committed in my own life that are worthy of judgment, he said to me, well, you appear to be a pretty nice guy. And I wanted to say to him, you don't live with me 24-7 or you wouldn't say that. (laughs) But this is what we did to help him. We said, you know, on the one hand, the Bible tells us that God loves us and He doesn't want to judge us. 1 John 4-8 says, God is love. But we said there's another side of God that most people don't want to look at. And that is God is just. And Exodus 34, 7 says this, God will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. And as we stood in the hallway yesterday, we said it appears as though there is this dilemma in the nature of God. He loves us, doesn't want to punish us, but He's just and must uphold His own law. And we said, how could God solve this problem? How could He be both loving and just? And I have a pastor friend downstate who put it in the greatest way that I've ever seen or heard it put. He said this, what God's justice demanded God's love provided. And God solved this problem between His love and His justice in the person of Jesus Christ. And because Jesus remained silent and suffered, He bore the full wrath of God against our sin on the cross. 
But because He rose from the dead and this day reigns supreme, He is able to give all who come to Him in repentance and faith eternal life. There it all is displayed for us in such wondrous brilliance in this trial before the Sanhedrin. He was silent and He suffered because the wrath of God had to be satisfied. God is a just God. But He would rise, ascend, be enthroned, reign, and come again with life and liberty for all who believe. That's the Gospel. And that's what Jesus was teaching that day in His trial. Let's thank Him. Let's thank Him. Just before we sing our final song, there are two things that I hope for you today. I hope that you know without a shadow of a doubt that the Bible is true. No other book predicted in detail hundreds and thousands of years before exactly what would happen to God's Son when He came and then shows us in such vivid detail how He fulfilled it all. And I hope today that if you have any doubt at all whether you can trust the entire Word of God from Genesis to Revelation that your doubts have been put to rest for the Bible is true. And who Jesus was and what He claimed to do is true as well. And then the second thing that I hope is that you know the Savior personally. That you recognize that you are under judgment. That the wrath of God already rests upon you. And your only way out is to have a perfect substitute who is God Himself who can represent you and take the just wrath that you deserve. I pray that you have repented of your sins, that you have turned in faith and trust to Jesus, and that you have invited Him by an act of faith to be your Savior and Lord. What a wonderful Christmas season this would be if you would come to a saving knowledge of the babe who came, whose purpose in coming was to die and rise again so that you might have forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and a new relationship with God. If you have any doubts about that, turn to the Savior now, wherever you are, and let Him know you believe in Him, you know that you need Him, 
You're turning from your own way. You're trusting Him based upon the reliability of His Word. And you are receiving Him today as Lord and Savior. Father, thank You for all that You have done for us in our wonderful Lord Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.